the Cybersecurity and Compliance Podcast with Craig Petronella. Learn about the most current IT security threats in ransomware, phishing, business email compromise, cybercrime tactics, cyber heist schemes, social engineering scams, as well as hints and tips from leading professionals to help you prevent hackers from penetrating your network and dropping ransomware or malware payloads. This podcast will arm you with the best info to defend your network against the latest cyber crimes. Don't forget to like and subscribe. And now, here's your host, Craig Petronella. You're listening to Cybersecurity and Compliance with Craig Petronella. Visit us online at petronellatech.com. There was actually just recently a, a, a um, health and human services uh, response to current litigation regarding access to medical records and the portability of private information. So I can kind of give you some high points of that as well. Yeah, please. So, yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, it was, it, it's... Um, it, it basically, I think in, in my, in my practice, what the, a lot of times the challenge is, is getting medical records because when a attorney's office requests medical records, the first thing a hospital or medical provider does is they kind of push the priority of those down to the bottom. Um, because it's not some, it's, it's something that they want to make sure it goes through compliance in terms of, uh, are they possibly at risk for being sued? Um, and are there other issues? And then it's like once they get the okay to get them to release the medical records, then as a third party requesting those records, even with patient authorization, we're charged in like huge fees per page costs, copying costs. And there's been some litigation and there's some been reg- regulations put in place, but it's still something that we have to push back at quite frequently. Um, and a lot of times, um, the urgency of getting those records, we end up just paying to get those records because we've got to have that evidence to push the case forward. Um, but recently there was a um, <clears throat> chart squad is a group I've been using that, that basically functions as a patient advocate and the patient a- authorizes them to pursue requests. And if they get, if chart squad gets a response saying you need to pay us a prepayment of this amount, then Chart Squad will function as their advocate to file a complaint with the Office of Civil Rights and pursue um, their their rights to be able to get the medical records um, at a, in as cheap a form in, in as cheap a manner as possible. And so um, the recent decision that came down last week is that um, response times on those requests by private by um, patient advocate groups they have to respond within 15 days as opposed to 30. And there's no fees associated with complying with those requests because it's essentially a third party functioning as a patient advocate to request those records directly on behalf of the patient. Have you ever heard of health ID passport technology built on blockchain? I have not. So this is going to make your world so much better. (laughs) Um, Let's hear it. So Health ID Passport Technology is an initiative, a project um, that multiple companies are trying to create. And basically what it is, is storing our patient health information, personal, personal identifiable information on a blockchain that the user or consumer controls. So in the future, and I've seen, I've, I've talked about this years ago, uh, I think it was actually three or four years ago now. So I haven't 
um, really followed the path of how it's progressed. But basically the vision of it is one day you and I will be able to have access at our fingertips to all of our information and get to, to choose who and when we share that information. So it no longer is in the hands of the doctor, the hospital, or the different place, the medical practices that you go to. It's in your hands and in my hands. So I get to choose, okay, if I'm working with Sean today and he needs to see some of my PHI, I'm going to give him access and I'm going to give him access to this, this, and that. I get to pick and choose what he has access to, when, how often, and if it expires. But I, as the the human controller of it, I, I need no third-party involvement and it's all secure and it's all built on blockchain technology. That that would make my world a lot easier. That would make a patient's world a lot easier. Yeah. Because um, the, the challenge a lot of times, especially with, with, with cases that I work on, had a call with someone just last Friday where he had what he believed to be negligent medical treatment with a foot surgery. And he, in his recovery, developed a blood clot and he's still having continuous issues in making a full recovery. And he's concerned, not so much as far as litigation goes, but he's concerned about getting a second opinion and trying to figure out what it's going to take to make him better or at least will he be able to make a full improvement? And the pushback he's getting from just going to request his records from the primary, from the prior care provider to get a second opinion, he's having tremendous difficulty in, in but doing it, that. Isn't that crazy? I mean, that, that it is. that's so inefficient. And like you had mentioned the chart company and these other third parties, all that goes away with, with a yeah. blockchain solution. I mean, it's, it's me, my data, I get to pick and choose and I don't have to worry about if the hospital security is lax and, you know, all these companies are getting breached left and right. You know, there's right. another one just last week with FireEye. And now they're, they're saying this morning in the paper and the news, uh, you know, that the Russians have stolen more intellectual yeah. property around and more CUI or controlled unclassified information in the def- defense supply chain. And, it, you know, it's, it, it never ends. Right. So th- my point yeah. is that in, in this context, if you and I get to control our PHI and our data, it could be, you know, we we get to choose who and when we share that information and it's all secured. All blocks of it are on the blockchain. I mean, that's the way of the future for sure. Yeah, I think you'd have you'd have some obviously some learning curve, I think, with people that aren't as technologically savvy, because I mean, I think people like you and I in industries like you and I, we have to be we have to evolve. We have to be able to utilize technology and we sometimes take for granted how adept we are at utilizing technology and, and what's to come. And the hard part is I think there's a lot of segments of society that may not have those resources or may not have the savvy to understand what's theirs and how to, how to hold on to it or what portals to access. And so that's going to be something that's going to take place obviously over time. Well, yeah, but- I think that that's absolutely valid and true, but, but that also opens the competitive landscape for right. companies to come out with more user-friendly services that access and control that data. Right. So the, the first step is let's store our data in blocks that are protected by blockchain technology. Right. And then the next step is, new application developers will develop front ends to access that data with your permission, of course. And then you can have, you know, trainings around that and maybe, you know, maybe Apple, you know, I know Amazon right. is also deep in healthcare now. 
maybe by that time, the, those big companies, those big players will create some front ends that are easy to use. But yeah, I, I, with any technology, there's always the learning curve and the human aspect, of course. However, um, most folks, I think, are are probably used to using some type of portal electronic medical record system with a hospital anyway. So, it, you know, a lot of that is, I think it's going to be this, I think this is going to be a huge disruptor. Uh, yeah. For a lot of industries, and and uh, with elimination of a lot of third party um, hands in the in the pie, so to speak. Oh yeah, it's 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 something that that has to happen. I think, um, especially when it's a what's it's a. I mean, I can't I I rely on medical records in order to build my client's case, and yeah. the the pushback I get in being able to access this information that is that is my client's information. Um, it's, it's, it takes up a lot of time and takes up a lot of resources. Well, yeah, that's just so woefully inefficient from time and cost side. I mean, when you were saying about copy costs and, you know, basically arcane methodology around, you know, know, um, processing information, all of that goes away. You know, you would be able to scale more. You'd be able to help the clients that you're serving faster, cheaper, ultimately, uh, yeah, there's going to be big disruption. There's going to be a lot of those uh, middle players that just go out of business if they don't right. retool. Um, but it's just like how blockchain has been used by Walmart. I don't know if you're familiar with that, um, but Walmart was one of the first um, commercial recognized use cases around blockchain technology and, and using it in the tracking of supply chain around produce. So if there is an E. coli outbreak, for example, um, Walmart's technology with the blockchain solution can find where did that, um, you know, if it was E. coli and lettuce or kale or something, where did that, where was the origin of that? Who was the form? Where did it come from? They can, and in seconds, they can pull all that factual information off the blockchain. So it's saved, you know, again, it's efficiency yeah. and saves a lot of, um, there's no third party needed. So the same thing's happening in transformation around real estate and deeds and storing, you know, records like that on a blockchain. You know, um, years ago when I bought a house, you had to pay for title insurance, <laughs> you know. So basically you're paying a third party to validate, you know, a certain aspect of the transaction. So all that would go away with blockchain technology. So I think that blockchain will be... Um, a big player in, in, in securing in personal identifiable information and, and mm-hmm. you know, making things much more efficient for folks like you that need to access this information. Oh, it'd be great. Yeah. So I'll, 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 now that I've, now that we talked about that, I'll do some more research in there and see, see yeah. what progressions have been made there. Um, but yeah, I, I'm looking forward to that day. I, I'm tired of my information being, you know, if you go to the five different doctors, now my PHI is in five different systems and I got to right. trust that five different systems are and entities are going to keep my information secure. And I know because this is my specialty, nine out of 10 of them are not going to do a good job with that. Right. You know, so then who's paying the price? Ultimately, it's me. My, my information is going to be out You're- there, you know, numerous times. Uh. Yeah, I mean, the how tech is evolving or kind of just changing. And I mean, you're constantly having to evaluate and process the potential for risks uh, of, of breaches and those types of things. And it couldn't be more, more, 
more scary than what happened with the, the Russian hack over the weekend uh, of the Treasury Department. It's like, what are we doing? Um, I mean, parts of parts of government that are supposed to be secure and protected, and we're still getting we're still getting hacked by by people that we know have hacked us before. So what are yep. we doing? Yeah, it's craziness. And it, and it goes around, you know, the new cybersecurity maturity model certification, the CMMC process that I've been specializing in ever since its inception. It goes around that, you know, DOD, Department of Defense, has um, seen that we've had these problems for years now. They made great strides in releasing the CMMC. I'm a big fan of it. I think it's fantastic. However, our own government sectors and departments are not even taking this seriously enough where they're doing the third party audits of themselves and the the cross checking and cross balancing is not happening. I mean, if it was, then then this wouldn't be the daily news headline. Right. It's not. It's just, you know, again, crazy times, but more need for policies, procedures, security controls, uh, third party audits and you know, uh, help for these folks, not just for the, the government areas, but for the, right. the, the players in the supply chain that are, you know, so it's in best interest for our country, for everyone to really take cyber and compliance more seriously and, and really buckle down. Um, but, you know, moving along to your specialty, how about you introduce yourself to my audience and, you know, we can talk about some areas that, you know, some things in at a deeper level of what what you're working on. Yeah, sure. Craig, thank you again for having me. I really appreciate it. My name again, I'm Sean Park. I'm with the Park Law Firm. I'm a small personal injury firm that is based in Chicago, uh, but also have an office in Atlanta. I'm also licensed to practice in the states of Tennessee and Florida, but my practice focus areas are primarily in the areas of personal injury, catastrophic injury, wrongful death, some medical malpractice in the Chicago and Atlanta markets. Awesome. Well, welcome and thank you, Sean. I appreciate that. So, um, you know, obviously you have uh, talked about earlier on the show the um, the challenges of patient health information and working with hospitals and various medical practices. Um, obviously, with blockchain, that should, should get smoother, and, and we hope that that could be a viable solution, and, and I'll definitely look into that further for you. Um, but at the current landscape, you know, how... How do you feel that uh, it's obviously inefficient, but what's the average time span? So if, you've, if you're working with a client and you need to get uh, medical records from a hospital, is it a week? Is it two weeks? Is it a month? Like, what, is it, what does that look like? I would say on an expedited process, and there's always a fee for everything when a third party is requesting records. And so depending upon the needs of the client and the need to be able to have that information to be able to push the case forward, I sometimes have to pay a premium to expedite a records request. And if I do that, I can get records within two to three weeks. But in normal times, if I'm just making a basic request, um, the records will be sent to me probably within 30 to 45 days. That's if the request goes through and meets all of the screening standards that the health records maintainer or the business office um, uh, makes sure that it's okay and they authorize the records to be released. But there's a lot of inefficiencies, both from a personal standpoint as, for, as well as from a support staff standpoint of having to follow up on records requests and figure out where they are. Because ultimately, those records re- requests are being uh, received and processed by humans. 
Um, and, and they're going through their chain of command. And a lot of times, unless you don't have every dot, I, I dotted or T crossed, they're going to kick it back and you've got to start from scratch or the records request could be received and somehow it gets to the bottom of the stack and someone misses it. Um, and, and as a, as a law firm that deals with a select number of cases and the need for the information to be brought in efficiently, I don't have the time to continue to stay on top of getting those right. records. It's something that I kind of will process and check off like on a, on a weekly to-do list or every couple of weeks kind of follow up on those things. So the follow-up and the man hours associated with following up on those records is quite tedious and it's a loss of loss of productivity. And so what I've used recently in probably the last five or 10 cases that I've got is a company called Chart Squad. And they are a third party private health information application that functions as a patient advocate to request those records. And I pay a fee per request to medical providers. They will make that request to the medical facility. They will also do additional searches for billing because a lot of times what happens when you have a hospital bill, what most people don't realize is that the physicians are separately employed from the hospital for liability purposes. So the, they, not only will you get a hospital bill for the hospital services, emergency room services, operating room services, if you stay overnight, uh, room and board type services and fees, but then you're going to get charged a bill for the physician's professional services that took place within that hospital. Then you'll have uh, sometimes even separate bills for radiology that will, that will come in. So a lot of times patients, it's all they can do to deal with making that physical recovery they can't keep track of all the records that come in or all the bills that come in. They're like, well, I went to the hospital. I, I should only have one bill, but that's not how it works because there's multiple departments that will give se- that will give separate bills. So basically I just tell the client to send me whatever bills they've got and I'll, I'll target my requests in that fashion. And chart squad has been a big help because literally I'll just plug in the patient information. Chart squad will reach out to the patient to get their authorization to function as their patient advocate and they will push the requests and they'll continue to follow up on the requests. What's been happening lately with, with medical records departments is they'll say, oh, well, this is a request. You, you need to pay a prepayment of this amount of money. And that's outside um, the current litigation. That's outside the law with regard to the current litigation that's going on, the current regulations that are uh, regulating um, how this information should be disclosed and what fees, if any, should be charged. And so in those cases, Chart Squad will reach back out to me and say, this facility is charging or seeking to charge a fee. If you want to pursue these records on an expedited basis, we would recommend you go ahead and pay this fee and the records will be released immediately. So, However, in most circumstances, sorry, I'll, I'll, I'll cut yeah. it short. In most circumstances, there's not a huge rush for me to have those records. And I would much rather save my client the money on the back end because any money that I pay and I get when I get a recovery, it's going to be an expense on their settlement statement that they're going to have to pay back to me. So I want to be as efficient as possible. And so I'll just pursue a civil rights violation claim that Chart Squad advocates for the patient through that vehicle. Um, and I've had great success in having those those fees or those prepayments set aside and charge squad then gets the records for me. 
Okay. Well, that sounds like a good service and help for you at this time. But I guess my question that comes to mind is why wouldn't the patient just go direct to help you get the records? Because it's, like I said, I deal with catastrophic or serious injury type claims. And so the patients, the lot the legwork that the patient would have to do to get those records, I try to make it as, I try to make my service for my clients as turnkey as possible. Got Where it. they, when they hire me, I want to take the legal side of their burden off, off their shoulders. I want them to focus on physical recovery, mental and emotional recovery, being able to get back to work, being able to get out of bed without being in pain, making all their physical therapy appointments, making all their follow-up medical appointments. I don't want them going on a goose chase to go and get the records. Um, it would be easy if they could do that, um, but the complications for patients to have to deal with that a lot of times is very difficult. Got it. Um, and a lot of times medical records providers, even with a, even when a patient will call and say, please release these records to my lawyer, they'll view it as, oh, it's a third party um, request. So we can charge all these fees and send the records on directly to the attorney. So that's what's happened to my experience at least. Okay. So it's, is that similar to like a power of attorney type paperwork? That's yeah. When, when, when in prior to recently, patients would sign on my firm's letterhead a um, HIPAA authorization, right. which would allow, and I would plug in the blanks for all the information I would request. I would set up, set up the dates of the information I'm seeking. I would want all records, uh, radiology, any type of images, all reports, all nurses' notes, basically. Anything that was that's pertaining to this patient with this social security number, this date of birth, for these dates of treatment, I want you to send that to me. Um, and the patient signs it. And those those HIPAA authorizations, once they're dated, they're only good for a certain number of times. So what I do is I tell my patients to sign them, but my clients to sign them, but don't date them, so that I can date them on the date of the request. So when invariably I have to request follow follow up records because the patient's continuing to treat. I can then contact that office again and say, please provide me with these updated records. Patient was seen on these subsequent dates prior to, after my last request. And they'll usually do that. But then there's a lot of follow up with that um, and a lot of a lot of man hours associated with following up on those requests for supplemental records. Yeah, I can only imagine. It just seems like a just a convoluted process for you it, to it takes it it takes a lot i mean and, and i think it's just i mean that's just the nature of my practice it takes a lot of time to get that information and evidence and it's difficult because you get so much pushback and you get so many fees associated with just providing the patient's information to me and the thing that's also kind of difficult that i've, I've just recently thought about is that i mean ultimately all of my clients are people that have been hurt through no fault of their own. Right. I mean, there might be some arguable issues of potential liability, assumption of risk or those types of things. But most of these people are injured in situations where they didn't cause their harm. Someone else did. And ultimately their, their pursuit of recovery or accountability or justice for, for their injuries and losses is being reduced by the people that are providing their medical care because they're going to have to pay back the money to me so I can obtain their medical information. Yeah. So it, 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 it further 
it further injures them because they're not getting full maximum value for their case because of the other monies that have to be paid out in the process of, of pursuing their claim. Yeah, that that's that's just crazy. It's, it is. Um, I think I think there are there are ways that it can get better, and I think the use of technology is surely going to get better. And it's a matter of a lot of times just making sure that the patient knows their rights, and the patient knows that it's their personal health information that they should be able to take wherever wherever they go, and it shouldn't be difficult to access, and it should be as easy as sending a, an electronic request with authorization showing certain identifying information that you are in fact a person authorized to make that request so you can get your records um, yeah and use them for whatever purpose you need to use them for yeah that's why i'm a big fan of the the health id passport technology on blockchain i think that that's going to be huge um and just revolutionize this whole concept around all these third parties involved and the expenses, I think it's going to make it more efficient in time and cost. What, no, I would, I would love, I would love to to be at the front of the news uh, as soon as you learn anything more about that. I would love to know. Oh about yeah, that. absolutely. I would love to be able to incorporate that into my practice and and provide that service to my clients to be able to get that information because I think it would make their lives a lot easier. It would make my life a lot easier. Oh, I, I think it'll it'll be revolutionary. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. So I'll definitely keep you posted on that. What, what is your opinion on the current landscape around HIPAA right now? I'm sure that, you know, from my perspective, you know, the law was enacted in 1996. It's old. It's antiquated. I think the new CMMC is going to overtake um, HIPAA and spread into other industries um, and especially regulated areas because I, it's just the most modern approach to things. I like the methodology around the checks and balance where you have to basically prove and show supporting evidence that you're doing all this stuff. And then you have to have a, a third party, a certified third party um, come in and audit you on premise, look over your shoulder, look through your stuff. So I think it's going to be huge in that respect, but what, what's your opinion around it? Yeah, I think, I think anything you can improve upon with HIPAA is going to be welcomed um, just because of what we've, we've seen how HIPAA was enacted and, how it's kind of played out in practice. And the, and the challenge I think with, with getting someone up to speed with, a, with new legislation is the fact that we've been playing in this space for 25 years at this point with yeah. HIPAA. And, and, and it's hard to change. I mean, areas of the law, even once you enact new legislation, it's hard to get people that are accustomed to playing in a, new, in a prior format um, even if they were doing it incorrectly, it's hard to get them to evolve and, and, and do it. But I mean, that's, I mean, everyone, I think everything that we've kind of seen just it's basic human nature to kind of be like, Oh, well, this is, this is what we're accustomed to. This is how it's always been done. And then figuring out how to change it, how to improve it, to make sure that, that we are allowing patients the free access of their information and we're allowing them to, take it wherever it needs to be taken um, or use it in the means in whatever means it needs to be to, to be utilized for whatever purposes. And for my specific purpose to be able to access the information a lot easier um, from a patient standpoint, it would, it would reduce their expenses on my side of things because they could easily just say, here's my information. Here's the information you've got to input into my portal in order to access its information. 
and then I could present their case a lot quicker and a lot more efficiently. Um, it's just going to be something that I think is going to be challenging for people just because it's something new. And then there's always, you're relying on government to roll things out responsibly and, and, and be able to properly inform people. And uh, I, I don't think that that happens very frequently. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I think that the uh, the most powerful process that could change in the future is the requirement of medical practices to go through that audit process. Because right now, it's pretty much self-attestation until something goes mm-hmm. wrong, right? And then you have right. the forensics, and then you have to show all your supplying evidence that you're HIPAA compliant. But most of the folks that I talk to, especially new startup medical practices or doctors, you know, they tell me all the time, you know, I've gone to to years and years of schooling and you've, you've told me all this information that's completely foreign to me. I've never heard of any of this information. They oftentimes have a binder for their HIPAA compliance, but the binder is no substitute for all the policies and procedures that they're supposed to have. And then they don't understand how those policies and procedures have to map to what's called security controls and the layers and, and how there's all this work that has to be done on a continuous ongoing basis. So right now, like I said, it's very, honor system, I think. And, you know, hackers know this and that's why hospitals and medical practices are still low hanging fruit for most of these, because they're running these programs, they're scanning your networks, they're checking on things, they're jiggling the door handles. And most, most medical practices don't even have the technology to detect those activities, much less mitigate the risks, you know? So oftentimes I've seen it, you know, it's the, there's a breach that occurs Hackers are in their system. Um, the latest that's pretty common way is they get into their mail system, their Office 365 system, and they sit there and they just lurk and just kind of wait, you know, uh, and they're just covering their tracks. And it's just, it's a crazy landscape that we live in. But the, the fact of the matter is that, you know, I think that most hackers are smart and lazy. They're constantly running these scans and checks to, to basically for those applications to come back to them and, and show them a list of here's your, your prime targets, right? And, um, you know, hospitals and medical practices are notoriously um, running older operating systems and older um, IT equipment because they have to support legacy you know, digital x-ray systems or something because they don't want to buy the latest and greatest. It has, it needs to use an older operating system. So then they have more challenges on how to properly secure those devices. Yeah. And the thing with hackers is they're, they're incredibly smart, like you said, and, and, and they only need one breach so they can write code that could send out thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of, of pings uh, to a system. And they only need one to come back to give them that that access point, um, and it's and that's something that I mean, I and that I mean I think and I think every industry, every professional industry has that same kind of kind of complaint about. Well, I went to med school for this reason. I went to law school for this reason. I didn't anticipate having to having to figure out how secure my medical records network needs to be for a small solo practice. But it's something that when you're when you're trading or you're working in protected private health information um, of your of your patients, it's something you have to be at the forefront on to make sure that that information is protected. Similarly, um, I mean, 
a lot of stuff going on on the legal side of things, especially with filing e-filing of documents. Um, every time I file a, a pleading in court, I have to attest that I have done proper redactions to make sure there's no private information that's being contained on this document. So courts are in tune with it. I don't know if they're completely um, up to speed on all of it, but at least they're they're putting the burden on anyone that's submitting a pleading to that large court system portal to make sure proper redactions are done so that there is no uh, personally identifying, compromising private information that could allow a hacker to infiltrate and use that information to commit further fraud. Yeah, and I, and I think that hackers also know how most mid to larger size medical practices, there's so many human element targets, you know, around social engineering and phishing and business email compromise. You know, larger the organization, it just takes, like you said, it takes one to give up the credentials to something, um, you know, vendor impersonations. Um, You know, it, it doesn't take a lot of effort for a hacker to do some basic recon to figure out who their vendors are for a particular hospital and, you know, create a, a very targeted phishing email um, called whaling to the sea levels. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's just, like I said, a crazy world that we live in. I was just curious if you feel like um, there will be, do you agree that, that you think that there will be more pressure around audits um, in regards to um, making sure proactively that the medical practices are in compliance? Do you feel like there that there, um, there might be an increase in, in any of those activities? Yeah, I think I think so. Just because, like you said, the 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 risk of hacking and the risk of breaches is is being is growing greater, and there's so much of a human element to it. I think part of it it's it's kind of a two pronged approach. If you have to have proper training of your staff that deals with private health information, and and you need to have systems in place to make sure that your system, your, your network as secure as it possibly can be, but then you have to come in. And I think that's where a, a company such as yourself would come in with, with training processes to make sure that your employees are not hacking or your, your employees are not, you're not um, falling for those phishing scams. You're, you're, yep. you're re you're, you're checking the email addresses and making sure they're valid with the the person that's sending that, that is purporting to send you that message and everyone can fall victim to phishing scams and everyone can, I mean, and it's just a matter of sometimes it's just inadvertently clicking on a link yeah. and, and everything right now is so, I and mean, if you saw it with, with the election, everything is so automated that it's, it used to be just robocalls and now it's these text messages and, and you get text messages from anywhere and it'll say, click here to show your support. It's like, I don't want to click on anything because I don't know where this is coming from. Yeah. Um, and, and it's gotten so more, I mean, a lot of times the biggest, the biggest scans that have been going on are just people. You always hear of the ones that like people with the phone call and say, you're, there's a warrant out for your arrest. Please call this number immediately. So, and, and then you call that number and, a lot of people fall for it because the fear of the authorities coming to get them is, is something that's going to, it's like, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and pay this, but it's essentially extortion. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and people just need to have, especially now need to have their radar up um, with any electronic 
messages they receive or anything they receive via telephone or, or text message. Yeah. All good points. And, you know, the human element is always the weakest in anything, right? right. So, you know, security awareness training, so important now more than ever, but not just the training, but actually the completion of the training and the testing, the quizzing, the constant um, auditing of that process and showing the chain of evidence trail for each of your employees to make sure that, hey, you know, maybe Susie Brown in the corner is not paying attention enough to the, the latest email uh, security threats and needs to go back to look at look over some training and get retested because she's currently posing some risks to your organization. Right. Um, so, I, I, yeah, I think that training and, and going through the drills uh, for all of this is, is super important. Um, so not just not just um, saying that you're going to do certain things or, or getting the policies and procedures in order, but actually having a professional set of eyes to look over them and make sure that everything's mapped properly and going through that battleship scenario. You know, You've got to have the audits. Yeah. You've got to have yeah. the auditing. But a lot of people, you know, a lot of people, they're not doing the security risk assessments. They're not doing the pen testing. Um, and they're, you know, you don't know what you don't know, right? So if you don't do this stuff, you don't know where your gaps are and you don't know where to start and where to fix things. So I think that it's it's particularly challenging for the small organizations that don't have a compliance person and don't, don't even know where to start, you know? So, um, yeah, like I said, I mean, I, I keep going back to CMMC, but I think that CMMC is going to be a good thing because I, I, I hope that one day the CMMC overtakes HIPAA and requires medical practices to show the supporting evidence for all this. Otherwise, they shouldn't be able to practice. I feel like it, that might sound harsh <laughs> and people might get upset with me for saying that. But here's the reality of the situation. If you really put a, a, a cap on that, and make it so that practices can't be using our information and maybe sharing it inappropriately and risking all of us, why not have, what's the harm in having a certified third-party auditor assess your practice to make sure that you're doing everything right? Not for the, not to get you in trouble, but to proactively at a much fractional level, uh, as far as cheaper, get this stuff in order now rather than later because it's just a matter of time because most of the the um the medical practices if you suffer a breach you're going to go out of business so why not do this ahead of time anyway and the number one complaint i hear about it is it's too complicated they don't know where to start and it's too expensive (laughs) well um i mean the 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 physician's hippocratic oath is to first do no harm and that by extension should apply to their practices as well because while they may be providing top-notch care and physically healing or treating a patient, um, their mismanagement of that patient's data or information could cause that patient harm. Yep. So, I mean, they, they need to, it's one of those things that, and, and, and I, I mean, in plaintiff's, plaintiff's attorney circles, there's always talk about litigation reform and tort reform. Uh, and a big part of that is, regulation or restrictions upon the ability to bring medical malpractice cases. And the biggest thing that you hear quite frequently from the hospitals and physicians side of things is, well, malpractice insurance is too expensive. Um, it's, it's, you're, you're going to draw, you're, there's, there's a healthcare crisis. You're going to drive good doctors out of the state because it's going to be too expensive for them to practice um, or too expensive for them to have medical malpractice coverage or insurance coverage. 
Um, but I mean that we're all human. Doctors are human. Right. We all make mistakes. But if you're if you are in a practice where you're providing medicine and treatment to somebody, part of that whole practice also has to be to treat the person as well as their information uh, as confidentially as as you would if that person were if you were just treating that person individually. You're not going to have a whole gallery of people watching how you're treating that person. It's it's private information exchanged between the patient and his or her doctor. Um, but at the same time, you need to make sure that information that you gather during the time that you're treating them and you're storing that information for future purposes, for record keeping purposes, for future visits, for continuity of care, for transferring that information to a subsequent treating provider for that particular patient. You've got to make sure that stuff's secure. Absolutely. Now, are there any tips or anything that you could think of that would help folks? Like one thing that came to mind when you were just talking about that is, you know, uh, most people should have a will, right? And yes. document that process. But maybe there's some things that they can <clears throat> do to proactively prepare that God forbid something happens and they get into an accident. Maybe it would make it easier, more efficient for you or somebody like you to help them, right? So is there anything yeah. that any tips or suggestions that you have around that? Absolutely. The the thing that I see quite frequently is when someone gets into a car accident, because that's usually where most personal injuries occur. I mean, there are more kind of more isolated incidents where people are seeking rehabilitation, re- compensation for an injury or loss. But for the most part, the, the cases I run across are people that are hit by a car, hit by a truck, um, in a car accident, those types of wrecks. And the sooner you can talk with an attorney, the better off you are. Um, because when those types of things happen and you're in the ambulance going to the hospital, the underside, the seedy underbelly of uh, the um, personal injury world is a, a practice called runners. And runners are people that kind of stake out uh, at hospital emergency rooms and literally sign clients up as they come into the emergency room and say, hey, look, you were injured in a car accident sign here, sign here. We'll work out the details later, but we represent you and we'll pursue your liability claim. Um, and it's, it's, it's something that happens. It's something that is unfortunate. It's highly unethical. Uh, it's, uh, it, it's, it should be illegal. There should be criminal consequences for it, but it still happens. And people fall prey to it because of the fact that they are in a difficult, stressful situation and they don't, they need to have that issue fixed so they can focus on the physical recovery. Um, So it's always critical to talk to an attorney to know your rights first, but make sure you get a good referral or you are able to uh, verify who it is you're speaking with before you sign any type of paperwork. Similarly, on the insurance side of things, what happens also shortly thereafter is an insurance company will call that person and seek to take a statement and seek to record that statement. And the insurance companies when they're doing that, even if they're saying they're going to do the right thing, they're going to accept that liability was on the part of their insured, they're going to do everything they can and use whatever information they can gather, oftentimes directly from the injured patient, to um, undermine the value of that claim. And so it's important to talk with an attorney beforehand before you talk with any insurance company. So that attorney can advise you as to what your rights are and what you should pursue, what you should do. 
from a planning standpoint, because no one ever plans to get into a car accident. Um, a lot of people don't realize that there's a certain thing that you can do to protect yourself because most people that are on the roadways are probably getting a baseline level of insurance to just get their car registered. So if you've got a, if you just need to get your car street legal, you're going to pay for a $25,000 liability policy. Well, if Craig, if you get hit by a car in a car accident, and let's say you're taken to the hospital and you had to have emergency surgery on your, on your tibia, um, and you spend three or four days in the hospital and you've got $150,000 in medical bills, um, from ambulance treatment and other hospitalization expenses, um, the only liability coverage you could pursue would be the $25,000 policy that, of that person that hit you. Well, that's not going to compensate you fully for your injuries or your, for your losses. And so probably the biggest protector that most people don't realize is something called uninsured or underinsured motorist coverage. And that's something that is part of your general car, your car policy. Um, and most people don't understand or realize how that works. But what uninsured or uninsured motorist coverage provides you is an extra layer of coverage to protect you from those people that don't have sufficient insurance. And it varies from state to state. There are, I mean, certain, I mean, in the states where I practice, Georgia and Illinois and Tennessee and Florida, but primarily Georgia and Illinois, the insurance laws vary in terms of what type of coverage you can have and how that coverage would apply. But the important thing is, most people on the roadways don't have a lot of insurance to begin with. So if you happen to get hit, the odds are you're going to need to have certain layers of protection that you plan for. Um, and that's in the form of uninsured or underinsured motorist coverage. And it doesn't cost that much more in your monthly premium. But what's gone on with all the big box carriers of insurance, Progressive and State Farm and Geico, people don't People just want to get insurance coverage and they're not doing a, a thorough job of researching what that actually means. It's always important to be able to have to be able to talk with someone as opposed to just ticking a box on a, on a website to purchase your insurance coverage. So it's always important to be able to talk with a person so they can explain to you what those various coverages are. And I have conversations with clients all the time um, about like there's a point in the litigation where I sit them down and say, I'm going to scold you a little bit, but you have the bare minimum uninsured or underinsured motorist coverage. And this is actually going to limit or restrict your ability to make a full recovery in your case. Um, and then I say, Hey, look, send me your deck page, your declarations page for your insurance. And I can tell you where your policy limits should be. And then I tell them to go and call their, their insurance agent and make those changes immediately. So in the event something else happens down the road, they'll have additional protection from, from the unknown. That's very good information. Is there any um, audit process around that? It sounds like 25,000 is like not nearly enough these days. <laughs> it's, it's definitely not, but that's all governed by state statute. Um, and, and so every and state they, has a different minimum. Every every state has different minimum requirements, and usually it's it's a minimum policy of insurance that you have to get to show you have what's general liability coverage, and you have to have that in order to be able to get your car registered to be able to get your tag renewed. And so, um, and when people have the minimum level of insurance, and those are probably the ones that are the most at risk drivers because they're usually the ones driving around in a 
in a beat up 88 Nissan Pathfinder or whatever, some old dated car that's all banged up and they're just getting the minimum coverage because the vehicle's not worth that much and they just need to be able to get it because it's their own mode of transportation. And, um, and they're probably the ones that are going to put you most at risk because they're, they don't have, they don't have much to lose. Got it. So is there like, um, I don't know, some kind of process or so it sounds like it's state state driven. So every state can have different levels, but it, it is, it is state driven. Um, and, and the insurance laws are, are different, but again, it's just the bare minimum that's required by state law in order to be able to get your car registered. You have to have a minimum policy of liability insurance coverage on your vehicle. Um, and, and it's basically left up to the individual to take additional steps to protect them beyond what the bare minimums are. It sounds like most people, I'm sorry. I was just going to say, it sounds like there should be some major reform around that because if you leave it to the individual, I mean, most are going to choose the cheapest option. Well, I would say most people that don't have that, that are essentially living hand to mouth that don't have the means to pay for good coverage. And, And even if you have bare minimum coverage, it's still the devil's in the details of what the policy is. So right. you you could be, I mean, and and I see it all the time where you pay a premium thinking you've got certain amounts of coverage, but then because you didn't read the policy book in detail, there could be certain exclusions that prevent you from being able to use your medical payments coverage, which you paid for, or your uninsured or underinsured motorist coverage, which is a contractual benefit that you pay for when you purchase that additional layer of coverage under your policy, the devil is always in the details. And so you'll have some substandard carriers that will issue policies of insurance and give you the expectation that you've got certain layers of coverage that might give you confidence. But unless a person goes and actually reads that policy, they don't know, they don't know the coverage they've got and they may not have the coverage that they think they paid for. And they might not be the best one to go through it themselves. They should probably get help at least maybe annually from an insurance agent correct, or somebody like yourself that, you know, to go through that and pick it apart together to make sure that the individual understands their risks for the, the choices. Exactly. And I mean, as you were talking about with, with people should always get a will, the thing that is very important um, if you have the ability and the means to plan for it, um, a lot of people have financial planners. Financial planners will consult with wills and estates attorneys. Financial planners will also consult with insurance agents to determine if you have appropriate levels of business insurance coverage, malpractice insurance coverage, an umbrella policy on your home uh, for excess liability. Those are all things that if you put a plan in place, they can help you tick all those boxes. But I think the thing that's most critical with all of that is the need for personal relationships where you can get on the phone with someone and yep. talk with them if you've got a question. Um, and that's one thing that I do with my clients. I, 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 the thing I can't do with my clients is I can't roll the clock back to the day before they needed me. I can only try to be proactive and go forward and help them um, get a resolution or recovery in their case but also help guide them with, with direction on if they need to get a wills and estates attorney or God forbid they, they need to go through a divorce, I can refer them to a divorce attorney. But the key is always to have good personal relationships. And that's one of the things that's been great about how you and I met um, is just the broad network that our business network has allowed us to be able to meet people 
across the across the country um, and make those relationships and get to know people on a more personal level so you know what it is they exactly do and you can refer them on um, to someone that you might cross paths with in another sector to be able to help get them help that they need. Absolutely. Be that connector for sure. Absolutely. So it sounds like the top two tips are have your phone number in their glove box. If they're in one of the States that you practice in, uh, yes. you know, uh, ideally call you first, but um, yeah, definitely at a, at a minimum, you know, almost make like a little checklist or, or if you have one that you can share, that'd be awesome. But almost like, a, you know, if you're in an accident, these are the top three things that you need to do right, right now. Um, and the second one I, you mentioned was basically uh, make sure your insurance is in, in adequate condition and order. So I would recommend at least annually audit your insurance and go through that with a licensed professional to make sure that you understand what you're signing up for. Cause I mean, let's be real. I mean, obviously most people want to just do the minimum and you know, cause it's cheaper, right? Save money. Everybody wants to save money, but you might not understand uh, the risks associated with that cost savings. And like you said, you know, there's a lot of movement to online platforms, but this is in my opinion, more, of a reason to have that personable relationship with a, a, an insurance agent and somebody like yourself. So you can pick up that phone and you can ask these questions. Right. No, the, the insurance, I mean, most people aren't going to be, if you want to have a surefire way to fall asleep at night, read the, read the details of an insurance policy. That'll put you to sleep after like the first page. So getting into the details of what your coverage is and the possible exclusions that are there um, you need to have someone in a professional setting explain that to you and help guide you through that so you can make informed decisions on it. Um, but the three bullet points I would I would send away or send your audience away with is if you're ever in a wreck and you're in the hospital, do not sign up with an attorney in the hospital. Um, do not talk with the insurance company or anyone from an insurance company until you talk with a lawyer. Um, and if you're in the states of Georgia, Illinois, Tennessee, or Florida and you're in a wreck, Call me. My cell number is 678-592-8743. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Sean. This has been fantastic. One thing that came to mind when you were saying that the top three tips is um, I was looking at cyber insurance for a client of mine. And on the cyber insurance side of things, some vendors will require certain cyber requirements to in order to do business with them. And we call, um, sometimes they, there's, they're given a questionnaire. We call those questionnaires like a vendor um, security questionnaire or VSQ. Um, and there might be certain coverage limits or requirements on there. But one thing that I learned in interviewing a cybersecurity professional is that if your annual revenue, so say the, the VSQ requires 5 million in coverage, but your annual revenue is only one, you can't get 5 million in coverage. I didn't realize that that was, yeah. So you basically, you can only get covered. You can get a little bit more than a million. So if if your revenue is a million, you might be able to get a million and a half or 2 million if you combine like an umbrella with things together. Mm -hmm. But you're not going to get to 5 million if your revenues aren't there yet. So I thought that was very interesting to hear. So I was, I'm I'm just wondering if that kind of concept correlates to the individual level, you know, so if your net worth is X, you know, maybe you only can get this certain amount of coverage for maximums on the other end of the spectrum, not, you know, not the cheapest coverage, but what's the best that I can get too. Well, I think, I think with the, on the consumer level with, with regards to just general premises insurance, like your typical homeowner's insurance or your auto insurance, they have certain 
levels that are in place. And it gets to a point where it may become, I mean, you want to protect what you know you can possibly lose. And that's the thing that I think from a, from a casualty or hazard standpoint, you don't want to over-insure yourself, but um, you want to protect yourself. And uh, from a liability side of things, you want to be able to protect yourselves for what you could possibly lose. Let's say if you look down to grab your cell phone and you hit a kid on a bicycle or something, or just, or you have some unfortunate incident where you possibly could be at fault and you could be suspect or subject to a possible judgment. You want to make sure you've got good, sufficient levels of insurance in place. Um, and so those are, I think, I think that that's the difference between the, you're the insurance you're talking about with regard to the earnings that they might have over a year and, and being able to have, comparable coverage and not be able to get coverage at a certain level because their earnings aren't as much on the liability side of things. You're seeking to protect what you already have or what you could possibly lose in the event you're at fault for something. Right. One thing that came to mind when, when you're talking about that is what about dash cams or dash cam technologies? Do you recommend is, those? Is that a good thing? I, to have? I, I would recommend those in the, in the sense that they are great captures of capturers of information Right. Um, they can possibly be distracting and you could also, I mean, a picture is always worth a thousand words. And I, uh, have had the good fortune lately of getting a lot of surveillance footage that shows exactly, um, how my client was injured and how my client was not at fault at all and what had happened. Um, and there's a lot of legal challenges you've got to go through in order to get that, especially when a, a, I had a, I had a guy who got hit by a car in a mall parking lot. And because I hadn't filed suit yet, the risk manager of the mall said, we're not going to respond to any document requests until you provide a subpoena. Well, that's, I can't, I can't issue a subpoena until there's, a, until there's a formal court case. And the goal of mine a lot of times is to resolve my cases for my clients without having to resort to litigation. And it would actually give my, my clients a better ability to argue their case pre-suit if they would provide that information. Right. But the, I, I had to work with what I was what I, with what I was given in a pre-suit capacity, and we turned up and turned up having to file suit. So I ended up getting the surveillance footage. But dash cam videos, um, you've seen they they've kind of come on in the United States a lot, like just recently. But if you just watch random videos on Twitter or on the internet. Like everyone in Europe has them. Everyone in Russia seems to have them and they're always on and they're great. They're great. Uh, they're great ways to keep information and gather information and, and be able to pro provide your best case. They could also uh, show that you might've been at fault. Uh, right. If, yeah. If <laughs> so, providing factual yeah. evidence. Absolutely. Right. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, the camera's going to capture everything good and or bad for you. And, um, and I've had, thankfully good fortune in the times where I've had good surveillance footage of cases, they've, they've all seemed to cut my way. But um, yeah, I, I, that's another thing that, that I would, I would recommend um, just because it's, it's, it's another way to protect yourself. Absolutely. Well, great, great information. And thank you so much. I appreciate it very much. And thanks for, for joining. No, I really enjoyed it, Craig. Thanks a lot. Thanks for Absolutely. having me. All right, I'm going to stop. Thanks for listening to yet another episode of Cybersecurity and Compliance with Craig Petronella.
Listen to all of our podcasts on Apple, Google and Spotify. Visit us online at petronellatech.com to book a meeting with Craig about your business. Thanks for listening to the Cybersecurity and Compliance Podcast with Craig Petronella. For other episodes and more information, visit PetronellaTech.com. Also visit our other websites, ComplianceArmor.com and BlockchainSecurity.com. Don't forget to like and subscribe. Thanks for listening and stay secure.